0: Good morning, Cornerstone. On last week, we learned that boasting has no place in the Christian life because the moral law, the law that we find in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the moral law has been supplanted by the law of faith. So that now faith is the new standard for righteousness. And the moral standard is no longer the main criteria in our righteousness. And Paul goes on to make his point. And in verse 15 of Romans chapter four, he makes what I consider to be an astonishing observation. He says that since the law has been removed as the standard for righteousness, God can now declare us righteous because where there is no law, there is no violation. Meaning that since the law no longer applies to the Christian life, it is not possible for us to violate a law that does not apply this is a huge revelation the King James Version says appropriately and correctly the King James Version says that where there is no law there is no sin (coughs) where there are no rules there are no rules that can be broken that is an amazing and astonishing claim So the entire time from Genesis chapter one, all the way to Exodus chapter 20, the law was given in Exodus chapter 21. So from Genesis chapter one, all the way to Exodus chapter 20, during that entire period, there was no official formal law. It was like the Wild West. Everyone was doing whatever they felt was right in their own eyes, and there was no official rule to tell them that they were wrong. Paul says here that we live in a similar situation where there is no law, there is no sin. But I think and I know that we need to add some nuance to Paul's observation. Because even though there was no law, and so officially you couldn't call anything sin per se, when we review Genesis chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 19, we see that God still brought plenty of judgment on those people, even when there was no law. And what this tells us is that God still expect people to have an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong even before any formalized rules were ever written. God still punished people even though there was no law. He sent plagues on Egypt even though there was no law that said you should not oppress and do violence against other people. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though there was no rule that told them their lifestyle was displeasing God destroyed the whole world with a flood God banished Cain for murdering his brother Abel Even though there was no law that said thou shalt not kill So How could God punish people Before he had officially established any guidelines How could he do that? A few weeks ago we were reveling in the fact that God functions apart from the law and that's why God can offer justification to us sinners we we reveled in that truth since there is no formal law that sets the moral guidelines God calls us righteous despite the law and that's a good thing but the flip side the flip side to that truth is that God can and God does function apart from the law, but God can also judge apart from the law. That's important to realize. The text clearly says that where there is no law, there is no sin, but what the text does not say is that where there is no law, there is no judgment. Hmm. Very interesting. Easy to misread and misunderstand what Paul is teaching here. He didn't say where there is no law, there is no judgment. Only where there is no law, there is no official sin. God can save us apart from the law, but God can also judge us apart from the law. It's important for believers to understand this because in all truth, we live apart from the law because we live by faith and not by works. But we must still take heed to ourselves as it pertains to obedience to the moral standards of God because God can still judge us even though we live apart from the law, just like he did in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Exodus chapter 19. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Every non-Jewish person, every Gentile today lives apart from the law. Only the Orthodox Jew is under the law, yet God still judges the Gentiles, even though they're apart from the law. You see, the law was not given so that God could judge. He didn't make the law because he wanted to judge. God gave us the law so that the law could examine us. We could examine ourselves by the law. God didn't need the law. He already knew what was right and what was wrong. He didn't write the rules for his own sake. And God doesn't need to be able to state chapter and verse of the kingdom code to tell you that you violated his standard. He can pass judgment without the law. So that the law is designed to curb man's propensity towards sin. But the law is not given to check the sovereignty of God. It's important for us to understand that because there is a segment of the body of Christ that sincerely believe after a disciplined search of the scriptures that once a person is saved, he or she is always saved and there is nothing that can separate them from God. There is nothing she can do to bring down judgment of God upon her life. They believe this way because they consider God to be bound by the law in his actions and in his decision making. But we've learned now that God operates apart from the law, and this means that God is completely free to save or to judge within the confines of the law or without the law altogether. God does what he wills. He's free. There is no law that can restrict him. And this is that constant tension between the law and grace. Grace. This is why the believer cannot afford to take the grace of God for granted or as a given because God can still judge us even though we live apart from the law. I didn't say that God will necessarily judge us. I am only saying that God can judge if he chooses to. And I say this as a warning and as a check to anyone who may consider themselves eternally secure to the point where no rules apply. That is a misnomer and a misunderstanding of the will of God. The child of God desires to be like Jesus Christ and even though he sins, even though we sin, time and time again, we still strive to meet the moral standards as established by the word of God. The person who is following hard after Jesus Christ does not view God's grace as a license to sin, but as an opportunity to be made completely whole, completely free from the power of sin. So, because where there is no law, there is no sin. Paul says, righteousness is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. In other words, Righteousness comes by faith in God because only faith in God can access the grace of God. Good works cannot access the grace of God. And if I were, if you were inherently good, you would not need the grace of God. Just like if a person is rich, he would need to depend on credit to afford nice things. But we need the favor of God. We need God's favor because we are poor in spirit. We cannot pay our way into the kingdom. Grace comes by faith, Paul says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. That's a powerful statement right there. You remember that Paul began chapter four depicting Abraham as the forefather of the Jews according to the flesh he says. That's chapter four verse one. He's the father of the Jews as it relates to blood relation. Here's what he said exactly. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? He was speaking to the Jews, specifically. But now, in chapter 16, in verse 16, he broadens the patriarchy of Abraham to include the Gentiles. So that Abraham is the forefather of the Jews, according to the flesh. But Abraham is the father of every person who demonstrates his same pedigree of faith. Hmm. As it is written, Paul says, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham is not the father then of the Jews only. But Abraham has become the father of the Jews and of every person who demonstrates his level of pedigree in the faith, every nation, every tribe, every tongue that has inherited Abraham's manner of faith in God. And what was the manner then? What was the manner of Abraham's faith? What did Abraham believe about God? The first thing that Abraham believed about God is that God is the one who is able to give life to the dead. Abraham believed that there is nothing that God cannot restore. Abraham believed that there is nothing that God cannot revive. He believed that anything that had life before, even if it has died, God can restore it to life again. Abraham believed that. He didn't know it at the time, but Abraham already believed in the resurrection of the dead. Abraham already believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular, and this is the kind of faith that you and I have inherited from Abraham. We believe that God can reverse the finality of death itself. That God can silence the tolling of the bell. Because we believe that since God operates apart from the law, that God also functions apart from death itself. That's kind of confusing, let me say it another way that's even more confusing. Death is a consequence of sin. But where there is no law, there is no sin. And where there is no sin, there is no death. And since God operates apart from the law, God operates apart from death. Death does not have the final say with God. This is what we believe. And I won't go into it any further right here. But I will say this, that this kind of faith in God has implications both for our future resurrection, but also for our lives today, to believe that there is nothing in our lives that has expired that God cannot renew, nothing in our lives that has died that God cannot revive. This applies primarily then to things that have ceased to exist. They once existed, they were alive, but they do not exist anymore. But Abrahamic faith goes even further than this. Abraham, and by extension, you and I believe that not only can God bring back the dead to life, but God can also, the text says, call into being things that do not exist. That God can make something out of nothing. That God can make light in total darkness. That God can cause streams to flow in the driest desert. That God can call us righteous even though no good things dwell in our hearts. Paul describes this type of faith as hope against hope in verse 18. He says, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. To hope against hope means to never give up even when the odds are stacked against you. To hope against hope is to expect a particular outcome even when it is decidedly unlikely that it will ever occur. To hope against hope. It is unlikely that the dead will ever live again. That is highly unlikely. Yet Abraham did not allow the impossibility of such a notion to deter him from believing God. For some of us in this room, it is decidedly unlikely that our marriage will ever turn around. For some of us listening today on YouTube, it is decidedly unlikely that we will ever know life beyond crippling depression. For some it is decidedly unlikely that we will ever be able to come to terms with our difficult upbringings. And by any human standard, our pressing challenges are insurmountable and it is highly unlikely that our stories will ever be rewritten in this side of heaven. But Abrahamic faith, brothers and sisters, is hope against hope. Abrahamic faith keeps on believing long after the final bell. And the good part about it is this. That this is the faith that you and I have already inherited. This is not something that you have to work at. It's been given to you. You may be thinking right now, looking at me and thinking, Pastor, my life does not exhibit that kind of faith. I am worried about so many things, so often I feel hopeless, I feel like giving up. I don't have Abraham's kind of faith. But I am telling you this, that as a child of God, this is the faith that you possess. Whether or not you use it correctly, that's a different question. But this is the faith that you possess if you are a child of God. Because the Bible says that there is only one faith. There's only one kind of faith. And your faith is the same faith that Abraham had. It's no different. It is the ability to hope against hope. To hope beyond feelings and to hope beyond human reasoning. There was a time when Jesus' own disciples didn't recognize Christ-sized faith within themselves. Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is not the right kind of faith. I need more. I don't have enough faith. I worry, I'm in despair about so many things. Increase our faith. I believe, but I don't believe fervently enough. I believe, but I struggle I struggle with giving up completely and giving over to God completely. I need more faith. That's the cry of almost every Christian. But listen to what the Lord said to his disciples. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. That sounds highly and decidedly unlikely, Jesus. That a tree is going to uproot itself at my command, at my bidding, that sounds decidedly and highly unlikely. Furthermore, if I only have a little bit of faith, I wouldn't have the confidence to command the tree to do anything in the first place. Yet that was the disciples' problem. And this is the same conundrum that many believers find themselves in today even to this very hour. That they have never attempted to command the impossible because they imagine that their faith is not sufficient to the challenges at hand. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, most faith is the size of a mustard seed. Most faith is the size of a mustard. Abraham's faith was the size of a mustard seed. It is not the size of my faith that is important, but the essence of faith itself. All faith is hope against hope. And faith is of such a quality that even a tiny amount of faith in God can accomplish great things. All faith, no matter the size. All faith believes that God is able to give life to the dead. All faith, no matter the size. All faith believes that God can call things into being that do not already exist. Small faith and great faith alike believes these things. And I could easily at this point, this could easily become a sermon about the most effective way to employ one's faith. We'll talk about that sometime. But for now we're gonna stick to Paul's teachings here. Let's continue then. The text says in verse 18 that, in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be so shall your descendants be. This promise of God to Abraham harkens back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, where God, the Bible says, took Abraham outside and said to Abraham, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he says to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. That's an amazing promise. God promised Abraham that he would have more descendants than all the stars in the sky. And this should inform all of us, both Jew and Gentile, that apparently God wasn't just counting Jews, but God foresaw that Abrahamic faith would be found in men and women of every nation, every tribe, and every kindred in this world. That is a massive, massive promise that is a world encompassing promise that is a decidedly unlikely promise and to make the promise even more unrealistic God made this promise to Abraham at a time when Abraham was old and childless verse 19 says without becoming weak in faith contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old Abraham also contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb both of them husband and wife both of them were past their prime both of them were beyond childbearing years Paul specifically states here that Sarah's womb was dead for all intents and purposes. But Abraham believed that God could give life to Sarah's dead womb. They were childless but Abraham believed that God could call things to be that did not exist. And even more, Abraham believed that God could produce through him more descendants than there were stars in the sky. Abraham believed that, even though he had no children yet. He only had a mustard seed of faith. But verse 20 says, yet with respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. Abraham had faith. But Abraham did not have faith in faith. Abraham did not believe in faith. Abraham believed the promise of God. In other words, Abraham simply applied what small faith he had to the enormous promise that God had made to him. And he didn't apply his faith just one time. Abraham applied his faith every time he contemplated the reality on the ground each time Abraham Contemplated the fact that his body was as good as dead He had to apply his small faith again and again and again each time Abraham considered the fact that Sarah was well past her childbearing years he had to reapply faith in the promise of God again and again and again And the more he practiced this application and reapplication of faith, the more his faith in God's promise grew in strength. And in renewing faith in God's promise day after day and week after week and year after year, by this Abraham continuously gave glory to God, the text says. That's what it means to have faith. To have faith in God is to give God glory because God is glorified when we take him at his word. And by applying his faith day after day and week after week, we begin to see Abraham's mustard seed faith come into maturity. In the beginning, I'm sure when God first gave the promise, in the beginning, I'm sure that it took a lot of focus and it took a lot of willpower to hang on and to wait for the promise of God to come to pass. In the beginning, I'm sure he would look at his own body and the body of his wife and his doubts would begin to assail him. But as he grew stronger and stronger in faith, the text says, verse 21, he became fully assured. Fully assured. Immature faith is not always fully assured. Immature faith sometimes wavers, sometimes complains, sometimes becomes silent in the face of what seems impossible. But as we continue to reassert our faith over time, doubt begins to cease. And like Abraham, we become fully convinced of the promises of God. Abraham became fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. No doubt about it. That whatever is the will of God will surely come to pass both for me in my personal life as well as for the entire creation. Abraham believed that God's will will have his way and God can and God will do whatever he said he would. This is the manner, this is the attitude of the faith of Abraham. This is the manner of faith that Abraham exhibited. And therefore verse 22 says that this type of faith was credited to him as righteousness. This is the kind of faith that God calls righteous. A hope against hope that believes God gives life to the dead. A hope against hope that believes that God calls things to be that do not exist. A hope against hope that does not waver at the impossibilities of the promises of God. A hope against hope that is fully assured that what God has promised he is able to perform. This is the faith of Abraham. So Paul points this out. Now, not for Abraham's sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. Hold the phone right there. In the beginning of this talk, I spent a good deal of our time today clarifying the fact that God can still judge us apart from the law. And with these few words Paul has just spoken, he shows us why this point is so important for us to keep in mind. Because while Abraham's faith has already been credited to him as righteousness, and while David has already received that same justification because of his faith, listen to this, you and I have not yet been fully credited as righteous. Uh Uh-oh. You and I have not yet been fully credited as righteous. That surprises you, I think. That surprises you, I hope. But read verses 23 and 24 again. It says, now, not for Abraham's sake only is it written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also to whom it will be credited. If you read this real fast, you'll miss that little thing he just did right there. It's already been credited to Abraham, but this also applies to us to whom it will be credited. It's not credited yet. We're justified, but it's a now and a not yet. And it is not fully credited yet because our race has not yet been completed. And our faith has not yet endured until the end. Jesus gave the parable of the seed that was planted into shallow soil. He says that the seed grew up quickly, but it withered in the burning sun. It didn't have enough root to hold on, so it died. We started out believing that God raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead. We started this race trusting that Jesus Christ was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because of our justification. This is what we started off believing. But it is only if we do not waver in faith. It is only if we remain fully assured until the end of our lives in this world. Then we will be fully credited for a job well done but until then we remain vigilant in our faith and in our adherence to the law because we have not yet been fully credited as righteous. That's a very important point for us to understand. So that we don't rest on our laurels so that we don't sit back and relax and wait for heaven's train to come and take us home, so that we realize that faith in God once is faith in God again and again and again, that every day we must renew our faith. Every day we must recollect ourselves and dispel our doubts and put our faith in the promise of God over again. Every day, a recommitment. We've been justified, but not yet fully, because our faith has not yet been fully proven. And it will not be until we leave this world and see Jesus Christ face to face, that we will receive the full and complete justification that belongs to those who have the faith of faithful Abraham. I'll tell you what encourages me about that text. When I read that text, it helps me to understand that this faith that I have is not according to my will. This is not willpower. I'm not putting forth any effort or any energy. This is an innate gift that has been given to me by God. And I don't have to do anything to have it. All I need to do is employ it and work it and believe God. This applies, brothers and sisters, in every area of our lives. And oh, how I wish that all Christians could come to this realization. That we have inherited a faith that in our DNA, in our spiritual DNA, is the same faith that Abraham had. That built a nation out of nothing. We have the exact same faith. When you believe that, you begin to ask God for impossible things. You begin to ask God for things that are highly and decidedly unlikely. (laughs) Because faith does not waver at the impossibility. (laughs) Faith trusts in God and glorifies God and waits until the promise comes to pass. Are you experiencing that kind of faith in your life? Are you experiencing that kind of bold faith that takes God at his word, that speaks to the mulberry tree and says, be removed and go into the sea? (laughs) Yeah, man. This is the kind of faith that we need in the 21st century. We're up against it. (laughs) The world is closing in. And we need power. We need the power of true faith that speaks to things and calls things that are not into existence. Faith that makes commands and demands in this world and we see what we called for come to pass. That is the kind of faith that is available. Whether you use it or not is up to you. It's completely up to you. But this is the kind of faith that you have inherited. Not because of anything that you have done. This is the faith of our father Abraham. Our story is the continuation of his story. Believe that. Accept that as true. And don't worry or complain about your faith or the lack thereof. If you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you already have this faith. All you need to do is start using it more. At the beginning of the year, my first sermon for the year, I recommended that all of us write down at least three things we wanted to pray for this year. I don't know how many people did that, but I had already done it when I told you guys to do it. I've been praying for the same three things every morning. And it's just what February, it's still February. And I am watching the things, and I ask for some ridiculous things. I'm already watching God begin to move and manifest things in my life. Now why do I do that? Because I needed something, because I wanted to prove it. No, 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 I did that because I need to exercise my faith. You need to exercise your faith. You should always put a challenge out in front of yourself, something to pray for so that you can exercise your faith. Not because you need something, not because you believe in magic, But in order to exercise, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes when you're kind of well off and you don't really have any pressing needs, you kind of don't pray like you should. We tend to pray mostly when things are going very bad. We pray then, but when things are going fairly well, we kind of stop praying so much. But when you stop praying so much, guess what? You stop exercising your faith and your faith gets weaker. This is why prayer is so important. And so it's always good to put something before you and say, you know what, I'm going to ask God for this just so that I can get some exercise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And as you exercise, you begin to see God move, guess what happens? Your faith becomes stronger because now you see that you're not talking to the wind. You're not talking to the ceiling. You're talking to God and God is responding to your faith. That's what you want. That's what you want. To exercise your faith the same faith that Abraham had and if you hold this faith until the very end if you don't become lackadaisical and take the grace of God for granted and start living your Christian life on autopilot but always be striving to be more and more like Jesus Christ yeah you will endure until the end and in the end you will be found righteous because your faith remains Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this faith that we have inherited. We are encouraged as we look at the lineage of our faith, the the, the lineage of our spiritual walk. see those who have gone before us who exhibited such great faith father we don't praise faith but we praise you and we thank you for your promises by faith and father we ask you to help us to come to the realization that this faith that we have is not personal It's not something that we have to conjure up. But that we are of the heritage and of the lineage of those who have come before. Of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Help us to realize that we are a part of that family and we have inherited that DNA already. Help us to begin to walk in that kind of faith. To exercise that kind of faith. Give us faith to suffer and to be faithful even in our suffering, to believe in your promises even though they sometimes seem unlikely and nearly impossible. We believe that there is nothing impossible for you and that what you have promised each of us, you are able to perform. So I pray for us today. I pray that we will begin to ask great things of you. That we will begin to exercise our faith in a new way. Recognizing that this faith is not innate to ourselves, but this is a gift that has been given to us from you. Help us to exercise our faith, to bring glory to your name, to demonstrate to a watching world that our God reigns and you live forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen.